Hello, this is a Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom here in Israel, and I'm delighted to be joined today with Fleur Hassan Nahum, who is the Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem with special responsibility for tourism and international engagement. She is also the founder of the Israel UAE Business Council, something that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Fleur, thank you very much for joining me. It's always wonderful to join you. So before we, before we get into it, I just wanted to make a couple of comments and observations about the, uh, the, Israel, the Israel visit to the UAE earlier this week. And I think it's very easy to be cynical about these things, um, especially kind of in the context that the timing may well be about uh, the Trump re-election campaign and building a ceremony just before that. But I was struck by a couple of points. First of all, that the, uh, the framing of the Abrahamic Accords and building around the monotheistic faiths, I think is really significant. If people saw the, uh, the photos of the people in the, in the synagogue putting on the tefillin in the morning, um, the phylacteries of the Jewish men put on in prayers every morning. It's not, shouldn't be taken for granted that this can happen in the Arab world. And I think that that's a kind of the framing of it around the monotheistic faiths is a very optimistic and, and important lesson. And I was re- it reminded me of something we have here in Jerusalem of the Bible Lands Museum, which also frames it in a similar sense of making that commonality between peoples that kind of predates uh, organized religion and showing that all the people Jews Muslims and Christians have a shared inheritance to this to this area um, the second thing that I was struck with was that quite uh, uncharacteristic of the Israeli government they put out a detailed press release talking about all the range of civilian infrastructure projects and cooperation so this really is being lined up as a positive warm piece um, and I suppose that's where I wanted to start with the uh, with with you Fleur. if you could just Tell us about the, uh, the, the founding of the Israel-UAE Business Council. What was your motivation and, uh, and what's your plan? So I agree with your observations. I, I think that we were all extremely moved to see, um, to see the atmosphere of the trip, um, how the Israelis were received, how the Israelis were so excited. And I just, it just, I think, points to a real thirst for real peace. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. Now, um, my motivation for creating the Business Council, the Emirates, the UAE-Israel Business Council, originally was uh, for the good of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is actually a city which is the most diverse city in the country. We have 37% Arab-speaking population here. And initially, when I started to think about the relations uh, that we could have with the Gulf, I saw it as a way that we could collaborate, cooperate to bring investment to East Jerusalem um, because we, this is a part of the city that, of course, we are developing very intensively uh, for the good of all uh, the residents, but mainly for the good of the Arab residents of the city. Um, we are working very hard to bring quality employment, real infrastructural change, and better education for the Arabs of East Jerusalem. And I saw uh, the the connection with the Gulf as a fantastic way of building a bridge between Jerusalem and the Gulf through its Arab community here. And how receptive have you found people on the other side, the, uh, the Emiratis that you've been able to engage with? Extremely receptive. First of all, the same thirst that I find that we have here for peace, I saw on the other side. There's so much excitement. There's so much... It's always somebody, I read somebody said something today, it's like we're dating. It's very interesting because it's like they don't know us, 
They've got all these preconceptions that they've been taught. They tell us, we were taught that you're like this and you're like this. And, and all of a sudden, something has switched and they, they, they're very curious. They want to get to know us and they do understand that a strategic partnership is, will bring enormous amount of prosperity. I see it from my point of view, prosperity to this country. You know, let's not forget the UAE has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world, even bigger than Saudi Arabia. And so, and, and in 20, 30 years, crude oil might not be uh, something relevant anymore. So they're definitely looking to expand uh, their influence, their uh, economic uh, future. And, and we have always, Israel since the beginning, has always opened its arms to anybody, any neighbor that's wanted peace. And so the excitement is palpable. Um, the, the people that, 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 that what, what makes our organization unique is that we are, I think, the only organization, the, our UAE Business Council, that is, is, has been created with Israelis and Emiratis together. It's not the Israel Chamber of Commerce and the Emirati Chamber of Commerce. We've created an organization of both Israelis and Emiratis, and I believe that the only way to warm peace is people-to-people -people engagement, interaction, business, cultural, tourism, and otherwise. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of projects that you've, you've lined up uh, um, for, for this sort of cooperation? So at the moment it's very embryonic. We just had a strategy session, for example, today. Um, what we want to do is uh, not just foster uh, and nurture uh, really good business relations, but we're talking about really high-level um, high business relationships, public and private sector. And of course, I'm coming from the public sector. Um, I'm very engaged also with the Americans who are extremely invested in the normalization process in the region. And this to them, of course, is, is their first major success. And, um, and so we're talking about very high level projects. I'm pushing them, of course, into East Jerusalem. We're talking about a, possibly an industrial zone, high tech zone. Um, and even uh, the possibility of some type of um, uh, some type of hospital, a regional hospital, children's hospital that we could put together. I, at the moment, I, I can't really elaborate too much. It's very embryonic, but there's certainly very serious public-private partnerships uh, in play here. Sounds fantastic. Um, let's put the UAE aside for a moment. Um, within, within your regular focus as Deputy Mayor of Jerusalem, what else can you tell us that's already ongoing about development issues and, and projects within East Jerusalem? Well, we've got a, a number of very exciting projects. First of all, we're building a huge high-tech area in Wadi Joz, which is the closest neighborhood, let's say, to the old city. And we're going to call it Silicon Wadi. Um, and basically what we want to bring there, we're bringing tens of thousands of meterage in um, commercial property, uh, shops, high-tech offices, and hotels. This is the first ever project of its nature to take place in East Jerusalem. Uh, I'm the first one to admit that for many years Israel didn't really know what to do with East Jerusalem. Many people thought, oh, why bother? Uh, they're going to be part of a Palestinian uh, uh, state one day as a capital. Why are we investing? And there are many, many gaps in infrastructure. Um, two years ago, uh, the Jerusalem Affairs Minister at the time, Zevelkin, uh, tried to um, pass a law, a government decision to close those gaps. We have unprecedented budgets coming from the Israeli government into East Jerusalem for three main things, education, 
um, infrastructural development like uh, sewage and pavements and things like that and also quality employment. So the Silicon Valley falls into two of those categories, which is quality employment and infrastructural development. Thank you. You mentioned education. I know one of the other issues you're very concerned about is the, is the state of the, uh, the textbooks that East Jerusalemites uh, have access to. Um, what are your concerns there and what are you doing about it? I'm very concerned because the only way to really have long-lasting, sustainable peace or to live in a shared society is, um, is, is to have children believing that they can live together. And what we have is a situation where, unfortunately, for historical reasons, 93% of the schools in East Jerusalem are run uh, by the Palestinian Authority, directly or indirectly through non-profit organizations. On top of that, we've also got uh, about 27 UNRWA schools, uh, and what they share is that both the UNRWA schools and the Palestinian Authority schools uh, use the same curriculum, which is the Palestinian Authority curriculum. Uh, this curriculum is not only not fostering peace, it's fostering hatred and incitement and a complete obsession with the right of return, which means that none of this is going to be what we can actually build on to create a shared society and a sustainable peace here. And so I've been to the British government and I've asked for help. Uh, uh, Britain is the third or second largest um, contributor to the UNRWA. Uh, and um, as we have seen, the United States have stopped funding UNRWA for precisely this reason. Um, I went to the House of Lords in January to ask for their help in, uh, I'm not saying don't provide help to UNRWA. I'm saying make the help conditional on a curriculum that fosters peace, understanding, and reconciliation, and not incitement, glorification of martyrdom, and, um, and, and anti-Semitism. And so uh, we have a very ridiculous situation where uh, the United Kingdom government did heed our call, um, started a, a number of years ago. They went to the EU. The EU appointed a private uh, research company in Germany called the Eckhart Institute to look into this um, this issue of the of the Palestinian Authority school books, the Eckhart Institute comes back two weeks ago telling us that everything is fine and there's no incitement in the Palestinian school book. Uh, but unfortunately, they were working from the wrong material and they were analysing Israeli Arab Israeli school books that we use in our schools in East Jerusalem rather than Palestinian Authority school books. And so they've spent two hundred and twenty thousand pounds of UK taxpayers' money on the wrong research. Um, so this is the farce that we're seeing. It's, it doesn't, we don't need a company uh, to analyze the books for two years to know that the, uh, when the maps have got none, no Israel on the map, when the uh, math questions are about martyrs and dead Jews, and the physics questions are about the velocity of a catapult uh, to an Israeli soldier, we really don't need a research institute to tell us that there's incitement in this curriculum. That's shocking. How, um, how receptive have you found the British government? Uh, well, the, the, I found that we, we had a meeting in the House of Lords extremely receptive. They know that this is a problem. Uh, they've, people have written letters, uh, but unfortunately in a, in, a, uh, in a larger session in the House of Lords uh, with the relevant minister, uh, all the answers that we got were 
uh, the Eckhart Institute is looking into it. Well, now we see what the Eckhart Institute did, and I hope that the British government does not wait two more years in order to stop funding hatred, because they are getting, they are basically separating us from peace and not uh, bringing us closer. Um, let me ask you on the ground here. I mean, you talk about you know, the curriculum talks about the the right of return and these sort of these sort of issues. How how have you found your interactions with uh, with regular East Jerusalemites and kind of how how receptive are they to help and how do they feel about their identity as Jerusalemites? Well, I've got to say I've been, I guess, surprised in the last few years as I've engaged with this more and more. Um, I think that there's been a change in the attitudes in general in East Jerusalem. I'm not saying there's no hostility. There's so much work of understanding and reconciliation that we still have to do. But what I will say is that the people that I work with, the people, first of all, there's more people that you can work with. So that's already a huge change. Five, ten years ago, very few organizations wanted to work with the Jerusalem municipality. Today, everybody's running to work with us because they understand that our only agenda is the good of the resident. We don't have a national political agenda here in Jerusalem. We're a municipality. This is local government. We want people's rubbish picked up. We want good education. We want good transport. And we want good economic development. That's what we're interested in. We're not going to be the people uh, deciding on the future So of of, of the, the, you know, of the, between the states uh, and a peace agreement. So we're interested in the resident. And I think in the last five years, we've seen that the Arabs in East Jerusalem have realized this. A. B, they've realized that their salvation is not coming from the Palestinian Authority. All the Palestinian Authority has done is intimidate them not to normalize with the city um, and have given them nothing absolutely no resources, uh, their schools are poorly funded, uh, their teachers are substandard, and, and the, the, the dropout rate in the um, Palestinian Authority-run schools in East Jerusalem is shocking. We, for the first time in the last two years, actually have the resources to say, we will create, we will build a school for you, we have schools for you, Arab schools, from Jerusalem. In other words, Hebrew is the second language. It's not the first language. Arab is the first language. Hebrew is the second language. There is, I mean, I can show you the school books. They've been analyzed by experts. There's zero Zionism in the school books. It's very much a school book talking about reconciliation and building a a better world uh, for all our children. And so we, for the first time, can say the Palestinian Authority are not taking care of you They're not providing you with any opportunity, but now we can. And that's the difference in the last few years. And there is a difference in attitude coming from the Arabs in Jerusalem because now they know this, they've realized this, and many, many are working with us on a day-to-day. And plus, just speak to business people and you say to them, what would you like Jerusalem to be? And all of them say, we want to stay one city, we want to be under Israeli uh, uh, sovereignty, certainly want to be under the Jerusalem municipality. Um, and and that is what I find, you know, surprisingly, uh, you know, uh, shocking that now many of the Arabs in East Jerusalem, uh, I, I always say when the Trump peace, peace plan was rolled out, there were many Arabs in East Jerusalem that uh, breathed a sigh of relief that mm. they're on our side. 
So we spoke about the, the positive in influence potentially of the, of the UAE. Amongst the, within the Israeli media, there's, uh, there's kind of growing concern about the influence of uh, the Turkey has within East Jerusalem, um, not in a positive sense at all. Um, how does that manifest itself and how concerned are you about Turkish influence? I am concerned about Turkish influence. Look, what we're seeing now, especially with this UAE-Israel-Abraham Accords, is a realignment of the Muslim Brotherhood on one side and the countries who are against the Muslim Brotherhood on the other side. And of course, uh, we're on the other side of the Muslim Brotherhood, as is obvious. And so um, this is actually playing itself out here in, in Jerusalem. Uh, the Turks have been here for a number of years through non-profit organizations, offering free scholarships to uh, students to go and study in Turkey. They're welcome to do that, of course. But uh, their agenda is, of course, to build up the Muslim Brotherhood in Israel in general, in uh, Jerusalem in particular. I'm very, very concerned. Um, we need to do some decent research to see who, who is here, who they're loyal to, and who they're using. Um, that is something that the Israeli government still yet has not engaged in looking into and dealing with. Um, and I will be lobbying uh, for this, not just from the Israeli government, but also from the international community. Thank you. Um, and just finally, if we can talk about uh, the, the coronavirus and, and how do you assess um, the state of it? Obviously, Jerusalem has two large groups of populations who are particularly um, both vulnerable and have been uh, um, disproportionately affected, the ultra-Orthodox community, and now we're seeing growing numbers of concern also within East Jerusalem. How do you, how do you assess the, uh, the state of play as it is? Well, listen, I just received the list of uh, red neighborhoods. Well, the, the good thing is that the government is not seeing Jerusalem as one big city. It's seeing us as the heterogeneous city that we are, which is a city made of different neighborhoods, ultra-Orthodox Jews, secular Jews, Arabs, and everybody else. And so uh, what um, I saw this morning in the list is it's primarily Arab, uh, Arab neighborhoods and, and some ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. Um, and I can tell you, hand in heart, I also had a, I interviewed last night the Deputy Health Minister. We are only using one criteria and one criteria alone, and that is the number of, of sick people in the neighborhood. During the first wave, if a neighborhood had one in a thousand corona patients, it didn't matter which neighborhood they got put on lockdown as a neighborhood. We are using a mathematical criteria. We're not using any other criteria. But unfortunately, we have some cultural realities. And the cultural realities are that the ultra-Orthodox and the uh, Arab communities have large families. They live, mainly the ultra-Orthodox live in more confined spaces, more crowded spaces. The Arabs have bigger spaces because they live multi-generational families. Um, and they're very communal people. Now, what happened? Why did the second wave happen? And why is it continuing? You know, we went into um, an Arab festival and we went into wedding season in the Arab community. And what we saw was, and I spoke to many, many uh, Arab friends of mine, people going to weddings, multiple weddings in one night, 500 people, 400 people, 1,000 people. It was an accident waiting to happen. The ultra-Orthodox, the same thing. They started playing uh, started praying together in large numbers. We saw a wedding three weeks ago of 3,000 people, of course, flagrantly against um, the health ministry rules. 
Um, some of them got fined. Some of them have been um, uh, have opened there's files in the police at the moment, but that doesn't help because they were there that night, which means that two weeks later you're going to have an, another a mini wave. And so, unfortunately, uh, this is what's happened. Now, I I will say that we could have done maybe more work in uh, in in explaining the situation in um, enforcing fines. But again, you go and you break up an Arab wedding and the next thing they'll say is political. Uh, the same with the ultra-Orthodox. Both these communities, or very different communities, but have a lot of similarities, are complaining of discrimination in some ways. And in both communities that live in the largest numbers in Jerusalem, I say to them, it's purely mathematical. The old city, the Jewish part of the old city is also on lockdown and is also a red community because, again, they live in crowded spaces. This is not about a Jew and Arab. It's not about secular, ultra-Orthodox. It's mainly about the numbers. The numbers, of course, uh, th this happened because of the different cultural uh, habits of the different communities, and now we have to deal with that. And, and finally, there's been a lot of criticism in the Israeli media about the, the government's handling of, of, of the coronavirus. How have you found, from a municipal perspective, how have you found that interaction between central government and local government? Well, listen, I was very involved, of course, in the first wave. Um, I, I, I think we did a, a good job. Second wave, I think that the city of Jerusalem and the mayor in particular, the mayor is uh, Moshe Leon, is somebody who's very uh, close he comes from the government. He was, uh, he was the, the uh, director general of the prime minister's office, and he's had other very senior public roles. And he is in touch uh, on a daily basis with the Home Front Command, which have taken part of the operations of uh, the coronavirus. Um, the uh, corona tsar uh, came to visit us two weeks ago uh, to the city, and he said to us, if you weren't doing such a good job, we would have shut down the city, your whole city by now. Um, we're doing, we are the first ones, we have the pilot Corona hotels, we have, the, the, the mayor did something that nobody else did, he set up a command center in five languages to call up the people that we knew were sick to convince them to get them out of their neighborhoods and their houses. Because when you live in a house of eight children and you have Corona and you live in 100 meters, you, you're going to be giving it to your entire family because you don't have your own bathroom and you can't isolate. And so... Um, the mayor set up a central command in order to convince and lobby for people to leave their house and into the Corona hotels. That worked very well. We've, of course, reinstated that, and we're hoping that, uh, we, uh, uh, that we will be able to tackle the numbers in Jerusalem the way that we managed to do in the first wave. Well, we wish you every success with the, with the, with the battle against coronavirus and also every success with the, uh, with the, forum, the business forum with the UAE as well. We look forward to hearing more about it and seeing the fruits of your labours. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you.